Farmers today are facing rising costs, volatile markets, and extreme weather. The Better Way to Farm podcast digs into strategies to help you take control of farm inputs and maximize profit so your farm can thrive for generations. Remember to take advantage of our free resources at abetterwaytofarm.com. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Hey guys, Rod here at A Better Way to Farm, where we increase yields and improve profits. Thank you for tuning in. It's day two. We're going to talk about phosphorus. We're looking forward to doing this entire 12 Days of Nutrients series. Every year, it's a great time. We figure out that there are new things. We study, we learn. If you want to know what books we're using, go back and look at day one. Karen posted that up where you can actually get them. She gave you links where you can go and get the exact books that we have. And we encourage you to read and learn and study and do what you can. So let's talk about phosphorus here. You know, it's interesting because it probably gets maybe the most talked about. We tend to think we need it the most of everything. We try to apply it as a 103040. We got to get that phosphorus in early. Let's talk about what it does. When we start looking at the roles of the essential nutrients in crop development, phosphorus is listed here. It talks about how important it is for photosynthesis, how important it is for respiration, energy storage, transfer, cell division and enlargement. It's going to promote early root formation and growth. It's vital to seed formation. It increases your water use efficiency. Guys, what was that worth this year to a lot of us? It increases your water use efficiency and it helps to bring on maturity. That's the bottom line, guys. We want to get that crop to mature so we can get it harvested. And we're, when we're getting that drier corn out of the field, we're coming up with some additional benefits there for us. We're going to talk about what the deficiencies look like here in a little bit. Got a story I guess I'll close you with regarding uptake versus removal. You know, there are a lot of things that we do know about phosphorus, things that are very foundational. For instance, too much phosphorus creates a zinc deficiency every time. You know, I, I look at these guys. I see soil test. looked at a soil test a year ago at one of our Fundamentals of Agronomy training. A guy brought it in and his local person had taken it and he had a P1 test of 86. His P2 test was outrageous. And he said, what what should I do here? And I said, your recommendations on this soil should in four inch tall red letters say, stop it, stop it. They were wanting him to put on 150 pounds of 1846-0 as a maintenance program. Guys, in 86 parts per million, it's hurting you. Ideal, we'd like to have 25 to 35 parts per million P1, 50 to 60, maybe 70 parts per million P2. But we know once we get to 50 parts per million on a P2 or 25 parts per million on a P1, we'd immediately know we have to add zinc. Why? Because we have induced a zinc deficiency. And so it's really paramount to make sure that we do that. You know, there are three measurements of phosphorus and they don't get, the third one doesn't get much press. Number one is the P1. That is the readily available right now. And the P2 is that which is going to become available. It's the reservoir that's going to start breaking down and start to become available as the soil temperatures heat up. The third one you get by ashing your soil, when you find out exactly how much elemental phosphorus is in that plant. And so what do we want to take a look at that for? Well, because we figure out, according to Dr. Mulvaney from University of Illinois, 
there are about, in the top six inches, there are about 6,000 pounds of phosphorus. 6,000 pounds of phosphorus, guys, in that top six inches. There's a lot there. The question is, what can we do to get a hold of it? How do we get things working right that bring it to us? And there's a lot of different things that play into that. You know, when we get to looking at, at soil tests, and we're going to talk about this on several different ones of our 12 Days of Nutrients series here, but uh, you guys know we're, we prefer a Bray test. We're not fans of the Malik 3, and I know you guys out east have been pushed really hard to do that, that they've encouraged you to use the Malik 3. We're a lot more comfortable, especially when we get into micronutrients, to use the Bray test. And then, of course, we use ammonium acetate if we're going to do potassium test, DTPA, for your micros, and then of course for boron, we wanna use a sorbitol extractant. The other thing we'll see is we do like an Olsen bicarb test in the event that that pH is above 7.4. At 7.0, we typically run both, both the Bray 1 and the Olsen bicarb to confirm those numbers. If you did take a Malik 3 test and you wanna convert, or you have a Bray and you need to convert it to Malik 3, the factor is 1.3. So either multiply or divide, depending on which way that you're going there. Guys, in regards to phosphorus, we got to remember this. There is only one kind that goes in. It's orthophosphate ions that go into the plant. The bottom line is a polyphosphate will not go in. Brief review, most of you probably know this, but an orthophosphate would be just like a link of a log chain, one single link all by itself. A polyphosphate is the log chain when it's hooked together and you have all those in a sequence. It's that long chain of phosphorus and that chain will not go into the plant. It has to break off. And guys, they talk about, well, yeah, but when the soil temperature warms up, it breaks up. It does. If you get to, if you get to a 125 degree soil temperature, you can get about a 96% uh, breakdown of that polyphosphate. I'm gonna suggest if you have a 125 degree soil temperature, you have some other problems and phosphorus is gonna be the least of your worries. Guys, we know that phosphorus tends to be more unavailable in the presence of iron. We know that it's more unavailable in the presence of a low pH. That's why having our calcium correct is really important. You know, and there are things in our soils that we are never, ever going to fix. Everybody talks about we got to get the soil balanced. And I want you to do that to the best of your abilities. But trying to drive that iron off, that's going to be a slow boat to China. So what do we do? If we have a super high iron level, we just know that it's more important than ever to replace a good orthophosphate fertilizer. Another thing that really hurts us is high aluminum. If our soils are high in aluminum, then it's really critical that we farm around that. But guys, the most important thing here, and this is a talk about phosphorus, but it's also a talk about never putting aluminum in your soil. We don't let our fertilizer be hauled in aluminum tankers. Why is that? Because the phosphorus will suck the loose aluminum scale off and that will tie up the phosphorus that's in that tank. We don't want that. And I want to encourage you guys that there are a lot and a lot and a lot of fertilizers that have aluminum in them as a contaminant. And if you're getting a contaminant, of aluminum, that's dot tying up your phosphorus from the get-go. It never becomes available. And so we encourage you guys, everything you're putting on, your nitrogen, whatever it is, your byproducts, especially if you're using some kind of a byproduct lime or a byproduct that you're using for a gypsum, 
or you're getting some kind of a byproduct for nitrogen or phosphorus, check it, guys. I don't really care what the percentage of NP or K is. I care what is the metal content. And aluminum is very, very much your enemy, and we don't want that. Depending on who you talk to, we can get into the fertilizer handbook. We can get into Midwest Laboratories handbook. We can get into different books here, and they're all going to say the same thing. Somewhere between 10 and 30% of the applied phosphorus is what's actually going into the plant. And thereafter, after that first year, you're only going to get 1%. What does this tell us? This tells us that the idea of a double spread or a spread for two years is a really good theory. There are a lot of good theories out there. Socialism is a great theory. We would all work as hard as we can. We would only take what we need, and the whole world would be full of puppy dogs and rainbows. But the reality is socialism don't work because people work as little as they have to, take as much as they can get their hands on, and there's no rainbows and puppy dogs. Two-year spreads, that deal. That first year you spread, what do you get? You get 10 to 30%. That's the deal you make when you broadcast. But you also know that second year, even though you put on extra, that second year you're going to get about 1% back. That's it. That's all you're going to get. And so while the theory is a great theory and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy, it doesn't do the job. If I dive into the Midwest handbook, agronomy handbook here, I want to talk about, I'm just going to reiterate that plants absorb phosphorus primarily in the forms of ortho or dihydrogen phosphate, H2PO4 is the primary form in which that goes into the plant. There is one other orthophosphate ion that will go in, but it's important to know that there's no polyphosphate anywhere. Guys, there are three ways, according to these guys, that you can take to add phosphorus to your soil. Number one is a starter fertilizer that would provide immediate stimulation. Number two, you're trying to have a continuing supply of phosphorus throughout the year. And number three, we're going to try and make sure we have a good reserve of phosphorus there for the years to come. It is well known that most crops only get 10 to 30% of their phosphorus requirements from the current year's fertilizer application. The rest comes from the soil. Guys, I could just thump on this over and over and over again because that's what makes it work. They also talk about how important banding is because it puts readily available phosphorus in the root zone. It is superior to broadcasting. That's right out of the book. These guys don't have a dog in the fight. They're just telling you what they're finding. They're telling you what they know because they want to make sure you're doing the best thing. It's important to understand that under calcareous or alkaline conditions, in other words, you've got a high pH. If you want to prevent that fast tie-up, then you have to ban that fertilizer near the seed. Weak starter fertilizer solutions have zero value when it comes to doing this. Guys, we look at soil tests that might have a, you know, we'll run the Olson bicarb to be more exact. However, we know that when we run those soil tests in that brain method, oftentimes we see a P1 of single digits, 7, 8, 9. And we see a P2 of 70, 80, 90, over 100. Why that big spread? We know that ratio should be 1 to 2. We see it a lot of ways. We see a 31 P1 and a 32 P2. That tells us that something is broke. 31 P1 should have a 62 P2. We know what that ratio should be. In the high pH soils, we know that ratio gets real far apart because that calcium's tying up the lion's share of the phosphorus. Yes, when it warms up, some of it will kick loose. Yes, when it warms up, some of it will go to the plant. But oftentimes, we also find those high pH soils up north where it stays cool longer. And they're not getting the advantage of the temperature helping them. What does that mean? 
Again, we're going to farm around it. We're never going to fix this high pH. I get guys that tell me they can take a pH from 8.2 down to 7.0. I wish that were true. I'd be very wealthy if I could figure out how to do that cost effectively, but that's not the case. So you're farming in a high pH. What is your friend? Roplaced orthophosphate fertilizer. That's what we've got to have if we're going to farm around that and make it work. As we take a look into my favorite book, someone messaged me earlier today and said, I got one of these from 1982. And I was like, yep, they're my favorite. And there's no question about it. I jump in here and I go to page 125. And they say that since phosphorus reacts quickly with calcium, iron, and aluminum compounds, it only moves a short distance, typically about one-tenth of an inch from the point of application. Hear this, guys. Again, I'm not asking you to agree with everything that I say, but I am asking you to think. Don't violate the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not kid thyself. And the fact of the matter is, guys, phosphorus from surface application does not penetrate the soil to any appreciable distance and will be much more subject to positional unavailability. Guys, it's unavailable because the roots don't grow up, they grow down. And if we're especially in a no-till application, I think Brandon Chalmers has really proven this. He's getting a lot of press, and I really like that guy. He does a lot of good work for you. He's a friend of the farmer, and he knows that in a no-till situation, you apply over the top, it stays there. Row placement, guys, that's the key. Put it where the root zone is. That's what we're going to have to go after. As we start looking at some of these things that... You know, the soil reactions with calcium can produce relatively insoluble and unavailable products. The term fixation describes the reactions of phosphorus with iron and aluminum. We know good and well that once those get tied up, you ain't going to get them back for a long, long time. And so what are we trying to do? We're trying to put phosphorus out there that can actually be grabbed a hold of, can be used and utilized in order to make the most money. Guys, while I'm doing this, just know we love doing this. We appreciate you guys tuning in. So there's a bunch of things here that we want to see, guys, as far as moving up and making more money for you. And the utilization of phosphorus in the right way is important. I'm going to give you some factors here at the end that may kind of maybe blow your mind just a little bit. Let's talk about, as we jump in here in the Western Handbook, because this is where I go to get my stereotypical deficiencies. There's other places that you can get that. We have a publication, actually, that we put out that's got the different pictures of things. But phosphorus, we know that it's essential for plant growth. It's an active ingredient in protoplasm. It stimulates your early growth and your root formation. It brings on maturity. It hastens seed production and, in general, hardiness of the plants. What are your symptoms? Number one, you have small growth, especially small root development. Guys, our friend Francis Childs always told us that when that plant was two feet tall, we wanted two foot of roots below it. That what's below the ground is as important or more important than what's above the ground. It's not as cool to look at, but it's important. And guys, the bottom line is here, we believe that. It's one of the reasons that we have a seed germination aid that has phosphorus in it that you row apply to the seed because it helps you get those roots up and growing. That's what we want. Other symptoms would include a spindly stalk. It would include delayed maturity. I talked to several people this year. They reached out to me and go, man, my corn will not dry down. You know, most people, their corn dries down because it dies and then they're dependent upon wind and temperature. I don't want to be dependent upon the weather. I want to have crops that dry down. You know, it's funny because water hemp, that's a fine weed that we have here locally. And the fact of the matter is water hemp is 
always physiologically mature before it dies. All of your weeds mature and produce a seed before they die. But our corn oftentimes will die before it produces a mature seed. If we can keep that green hybrid staying green, keep that plant health, and one of those things is to have adequate phosphorus and adequate roots. We also know that early on, we get a purplish discoloration. A lot of times we'll get a field come up and it's got purple corn in it. That is not good. And then the lack of poor fruit or seed development. And so those are just some of the things that we see in the deficiencies as we go on there. One of the things that's very important in phosphorus, and this is kind of a freebie tip for you guys. It's also a teaser for one of our future sessions that we're going to do. We're going to do a session on boron. This ties in with a whole lot of, of different things, but we wanna we wanna make sure that we're doing the right thing because that's what it takes to, to work it out. I'm just gonna share something with you here that Neil wrote in his book. Even if the use of commercial nitrogen is ceased because too much nitrogen punishes the mycorrhiza, even if they stop using commercial nitrogen, the mycorrhiza will not come back until the boron has been increased to the toleration point. Once you get boron up where it's supposed to be, you can bring back the mycorrhiza. Why am I telling you this? Because there are people out there selling you mycorrhiza fungi for you to apply. I got a great idea. Why don't we just put on the boron? That in turn will make the mycorrhiza flourish and we're going to yield increase because the mycorrhiza put more phosphorus in the plant and we have adequate boron to meet the needs of that growing plant. Guys, boron's important too. We're going to talk a lot about that. I'm excited to do that session, but we just want to do it. In the late 70s, I had a client here who I'd worked with for a couple of years. His son graduated from an ag college in another state with a major in plant science and a minor in agronomy. He was there each year when I did the recommendations for his dad. The farm prices were low and he wanted to farm, but right now he needed a job. He said to me, you know, if it would work out, I would like to work with you. And I hired him to pull samples and work with me. One day while we were working on the same farm together, we stopped to eat lunch. He said, you know, Neil, I've worked for you for a couple of years. It took me 18 months to get my head straightened up. What you were telling me wasn't matching up with what I'd been taught in school. I had to start seeing examples and watching and looking at the soils to learn what you said and how it applied. If someone had said to me, you need to know about the cation exchange capacity and the base saturation, I would have replied that I knew that. Our textbook had a section on CEC, and it had a section on base saturations. The problem was the professors didn't know how to teach us to use it. I never really learned how to use the CEC and the base sat until I started working with you. Guys, there is so much to, to learn here and so many things that are so important for us. But the important thing I want to take out of this is, number one, nobody has all the answers. That's why we look at many different sources and try and put it together and find the consistencies. Number two, we know that if we're going to have adequate phosphorus in a plant, we have to have adequate boron. That's the only way that we're going to get that in there. So it's very, very important. Phosphorus is a relatively insoluble element, especially in the phosphate compounds. Here lies the irony. Many soils show a high level of phosphate, but in these insoluble forms, it requires a rigorous biological activity to solubilize the calcium and the phosphate to break down this bonding. Due to the nature of common phosphate fertilizers, 
which are highly acidic, typically greater and greater amounts of soluble calciums and phosphates are becoming insoluble due to the reactions between the acid fertilizer and the soil compounds. So what are we doing? We're, we're killing our pH. Simultaneously, we're crushing the amount of available phosphorus that we have. Many fertilizer specialists are either ignorant of this phenomenon or they just simply don't care and choose to ignore it. Guys, that's not a, that is not a raving review of our industry. When I look at that retailer that wanted that guy with a high P1 test to put on more, that was not a raving review. You know, I'll probably say it 12 times because I'm doing 12 sessions. Everything that happens in agriculture is good for somebody. The question is who? Our job is to make sure it's good for you. That's it. That's where we're at. That's what we're after. To take a look at what he has to say. The row support will be a standard blend of materials dependent upon the crop being grown. Soil tests are important because we need to determine the nutrient needs within the starter and the side dress bands. There are also other considerations that must be taken into account to maximize this system under certain conditions such as high alkalinity or low pH or low calcium or high magnesium, it may be absolutely necessary that all of your phosphorus needs to be banded to minimize exposure to these lockup conditions. Maintenance levels of phosphorus can be applied within this placement system regardless of soil conditions. Can I do it all in a band? Can I do it all in furrow? Yes. Yes, you can. We're going to have to take some work. We're going to have to do some strong things, but we know that we can make this work. The other thing that's in here that I found in several different articles is this. We strongly believe that nitrogen, phosphorus, and zinc will always function better in a combination than when used singularly. We know that when foliar feeding, we need a full NPK. We know that when we're row placing stuff, we want a full NPK. And that's what Donald Schrieffer was saying here. We need a full NPK. That takes out anything with a zero on the end, 824-0, 1034-0. They're never going to go into the plant as well. We also know that nitrogen always functions best in the presence of phosphorus. Since phosphorus is necessary for the release of energy within the cells, its adequate uptake during periods of rapid vegetative growth is most important. And so I think we've made the case that we know that we want it. Now, let me turn the tables and go a different direction and give you something else to think about. The next day, whatever day I get to day three on, I'm going to talk about potassium. I'm super excited about that. But today I want to talk about, I have a chart. It came from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. They did some interesting work out there. What they did was they studied the uptake and the removal of different nutrients. The K deal is mind-boggling, and I can't wait to tell you why that's important to you and how it impacts you in regards to financial decisions about your stover. But for today on the phosphorus, we're going to talk about the uptake. And they, they measured it. They had a field that went 175 bushel, and they contrasted that to a field that did 257. So roughly, we added about roughly 45% to the yield. It went from 175 to 257. So... If we were going to look at just the uptake, the uptake at 175 was 49 pounds of phosphorus. The uptake at 257 was 103 pounds of phosphorus. Guys, it more than doubled. To move that yield, that extra 40%, it took an extra doubling of the phosphorus into the plant. Now, here's the kicker. Removal rate doesn't change much. 
The removal rate on 175 was 0.24 pounds, so that was 42 pounds. The removal rate on, which left seven behind in the Stover, the removal rate for 257 bushel corn was 80 pounds, leaving 23 pounds behind in the Stover. Guys, to increase on the yield curve, if we're going to move up, we got to figure out how to force those nutrients into those plants early because we know that phosphorus doesn't become available till a soil temperature of probably 65 degrees. And the fact of the matter is nobody waits for 65 degree soil temperature to plant unless they're farming in the deep south. We're not going to wait here in Iowa. They're not going to wait in the Dakotas. They're not going to wait in Missouri. Even southern Missouri, our good friend Jerry down there, you know, he's after it late February, early March, and he don't have 65 degree soil temperature. So knowing that, here's the deal. We know what the optimum level of phosphorus is in the chute, but we know what we got to have. And when you come to our fundamentals of agronomy, there's a slide in there that will be more than worth the money that you pay to show up. This one slide is going to show you what it takes to maintain the optimum phosphorus level in a plant, in a corn plant. And the fact of the matter is the seed provides the first little bit. Our seed emergence aid will add about one to two days for that. But between two leaves and eight leaves, no matter how good your soil is, it will not provide optimum phosphorus levels in that shoot for the top yield. And so the question becomes, what do we do between two and six? Or excuse me, between two and eight. And what we do is we use a good orthophosphate row place starter. And that's how it is that we're going to get those yields that we're looking for. That's how we're going to keep getting better. That's how we're going to keep improving. Guys, I appreciate you tuning in today. I hope that you enjoyed this. Again, you know, I, I broke out a new Christmas sweater. Yep, I've got 12 of them, maybe 13. Who knows if we do a wrap up, but we won't repeat them. And I hope you guys are taking this time to actually prepare for the holidays and remember what the reason for the season is. Thanks for tuning in. We look forward to talking to you soon, and we really do hope you're having a better day. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.